Hello everyone, welcome to another installment of New Work in Intellectual History, a podcast produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. I'm your host, Robin Mills, and this week we're talking with Dr Jessica Patterson. Hello, Jessica. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me on the podcast, it's great. Now, Jessica is lecturing in the history of political thought at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Newnham College, so she's moving over to Magdalen later this year, when we will be talking to her about her first book, Religion, Enlightenment and Empire, British Interpretations of Hinduism in the 18th Century, uh, published as part of Cambridge University Press's Ideas and Context series. And it's a really, really uh, thorough and engaging and interesting book. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed reading it, so it's great to be talking with you. Um, could you introduce what the book is about in general terms to our listeners, please? Yeah, well, thank you for those kind words about the book. It's really nice to hear. Um, so really the main kind of focus of the book is British accounts of Indian religion, but actually more specifically the traditions and texts associated today with Hinduism in a really crucial period of the development of British empire in India. So specifically sort of mid 18th century, thinking after 1757, the Battle of Plassey, which is seen as a decisive turning point in the expansion of the East India Company's presence and the sort of period in which it takes on many of the attributes of a sovereign power and uh, particular parts of governance in Bengal which obviously excites quite a bit of debate in Britain as well as Europe. So it's thinking about what's the view of this religious tradition within this context. But it also does two things because I was really interested in when I started to delve into these British accounts, what were quite some idiosyncratic interpretations of that religion um, and how that came about, what the intellectual traditions that those writers were drawing on but also the reception that they received, because in Europe they were quite widely read, they've got some prominent thinkers citing their works, Voltaire, Diderot, some of the German romantics, and also in course in Britain, some of the texts pop up in the impeachment trial of Warren Hastings. So it's a really attempt to situate that, that body of literature that emerges in this period about Hinduism in the context of Enlightenment intellectual culture, but also the debates about the East India Company, East India Company politics and empire in India. Okay. So, and it's sort of like the, the group of thinkers just before William Jones. William Jones is usually right. the, uh, where the focus is, where the attention is. And you've kind of, well, there's some people beforehand and they are important. We often describe it as sort of a transformative moment in right. not just British, but European understandings of uh, India. Um, can you introduce... Uh, those figures to us, including Jones, yeah. I suppose. But yes, who, who are the cast of characters? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jones comes right at the end of the book. And I think this is largely because, as you say, he's often considered the birth of British Orientalism. And that has a lot to do with the founding of the Asiatic Society um, by, well, Jones as its first president, but also because of Edward Said's kind of positioning of Jones as an archetypal Orientalist. But as you say, actually, he comes at the end of the development of a particularly British set of interpretations about Hinduism, partly because of their access to Indian languages and texts because of the conquest of Bengal. So the first kind of character that we begin with, so this situates the book sort of thinking in focused ways about Hinduism in the 1760s is a chap called John Zephaniah Holwell. 
who is a very interesting character indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of his interpretation of Hinduism is, to put it this way, quite dubious. And I'll maybe talk about some of the ways that that is. So he starts off um, as a ship surgeon and finds his way to India via that route and then becomes a surgeon in Calcutta. And whilst there tries to take on a few more of the kind of civic roles of Calcutta as this British base and ingratiate himself through that kind of uh, opportunity into the administration of the East India Company. So he writes to the Court of Directors proposing some reforms on the post of Zamindar, which is some kind of Mughal position of landowning, but it's used in this period in Calcutta to refer to as the revenue collector. And so he wants that post for himself and he wants to climb through the ranks of the company, but also at the same time, he's writing about Indian religion. He's also very well known for his account of what gets later termed the black hole of Calcutta. That's probably where most people might have encountered Holwell before. This is seen as becoming as one of the um, sort of mythologies of empire, the mistreatment of the company at the hands of the invading Nawab. Um, but he also produces this text, interesting historical events relative to the provinces of Bengal. And the title suggests that it's a history, but that's actually a tiny part of the text, a very short part at the beginning. Um, and what we get is um, uh, in the second volume, a really detailed account of what he calls the Gentoo Shastra, this original text. Um, and then that then degenerates into the third volume, which is a very idiosyncratic text into his whole discussion of that theology and how it might relate to Christian theology and how we might combine the two. So that's Holwell and I'll say more about him later, perhaps. Then we move on to Alexander Dow. He was another interesting figure. Um, Dow's connection to the company is through its military. So he joins uh, from um, as a midshipman um, from, from a private ship and finds his way into the company's military. And we know that he initially rises to an officer's position, but after being involved in a protest against Clive's abolition of the double field allowance, so a removal of pay, uh, he ends up back in England and his military career in the company is really frustrated. So he also, like Holwell, tries to ingratiate himself in the company's administration and he points to his abilities in Indian languages, so Arabic, Persian, maybe Bengali, um, to advocate for himself becoming part of its administrative branch. This is unsuccessful, so instead he then turns to a literary career and starts publishing um, a collection of tales, these like orientalized tales. Uh, he also produces a play about Genghis Khan in this period when he's back in England. And the text that I look mostly at, which is his translation of the Persian history of the Mughal Empire, the Tariq e Farishta, uh, which is a very loose translation and appended to that is a dissertation on the customs, manners, religion, language of the Hindus. So we, again, we have a dissertation about Indian religion from Tao. Um, and again, it's somewhat dubious in some of its features and Dow's expertise is also somewhat dubious too. And a lot of the book focuses on Holwell and Dow because they represent this very early period that's embarking on understanding Indian religion quite independently from company patronage. 
But the later thinkers, Nathaniel Brassy Halhead and Charles Wilkins, are both commissioned by the Governor General Warren Hastings to produce texts. Uh, the first by Halhead, A Code of Gentoo Laws, is a translation uh, of a compilation of, um, kind of Hindu legal precepts. Um, and it's really Halhead's preface to that text, how he introduces it, that I'm interested in. And Charles Wilkins, who's the first of this cast to actually be able to understand and translate directly from Sanskrit, produces a translation of the Bhagavad Gita, this hugely important text in the tradition of Hinduism. And again, it's his preface that I'm interested in, but they're both commissioned by the company and I think therefore represent a different stage in the development of the relationship between British interpretations of Hinduism and company politics. And then Jones, who's, as you say at the end, kind of represents the culmination of this uh, change where he is directly involved in producing again a code of laws and um, uh, has a prominent position within the company himself as a judge on the court. Fantastic. Well one of the well, several things that sort of stood out well, just from your description in about Howell and Dale is that they are not gentleman scholars. Like the right. first the, the first one to be a gentleman scholar is Jones, is that correct? They are, they're, they're not who you might expect to be at the forefront of yeah. the interpretation of you know, new texts, learning about a, a civilization and a religion you know, to a far greater extent than previously. Um, yeah, can you, how does that feed into what's happening? Is that correct, first yeah. of all, and then how does that feed into what's going on? Yes, that is correct. Certainly if um, Holwell and Dow. Halhead um, goes to Oxford. He's known for having, having abilities in classical languages. And this is possibly why he's picked out by Hastings for this translation, because he starts to excel in Persian as well. We know a lot less about Wilkins. So it also seems true that he is not this gentleman scholar. He's a writer in the company and again, shows himself to be very adept at learning languages. And so is picked out for that reason. But Howell and Dow, absolutely, they've got these kind of um, interesting careers into the company service. And I think that's one of the things that I wanted to look at in the book is how intellectual cultures of enlightenment filter down into a, a discourse at a more practical or pragmatic level of company politics. And, you know, often ideas of India are looked at in things like William Robertson's writings about Indian religion, but the origins of these ideas come from company scholars, well scholars is perhaps not the word here, co company men who then take it upon themselves to communicate what they have um, learnt from their experiences in India, presented through a particular lens of their own uh, interests. Yeah. What's in interesting about that, just as someone who is guilty of uh, focusing on the armchair theorists and people <laughs> like William Robertson. Armchair theorists, I, that comes from, uh, I think, uh, Caroline Winter's American Enlightenment about seven years ago, sort of, you shouldn't be, you know, the interesting stuff is not going on in university chairs, it's going on right. at the forefront of uh, imperial uh, consolidation and cultural exchange and those sorts of things. Um, yeah, and, but having said that, you do, in chapter four, there's, uh, as what you've already mentioned, but there's tremendous evidence that interpretations of Howell and Dow are extremely important to the general European conversation about India, right? Can you say right. a little bit more about uh, where that goes? 
Yes, I think, and I think this represents a change in sort of, I think the interest lies very much with China earlier on in these enlightenment uh, debates. And then as company servants start to produce these works, attention shifts to India. And I think Voltaire is very crucial in uh, the, you know, the architect of that shift because he writes about it very prominently. Prominently, And we also see in the Encyclopedia, you know, entries on things like Brahmins and Gemtus. And he really presents, and using particularly the work of Holwell and Dow, the idea of this as a pristine original religion, uncorrupted by um, superstition as it's presented by Hole and Dow in their recovery of its original texts. So one of the things that Hole and Dow have very much in common is the view that travel accounts that had previously dominated interpretations of Indian religion were very partial and unsatisfactory because they were made of observations of Hindu rituals and practices, which to them represented the most superstitious forms of Hinduism uh, practiced by the common people. Whereas if you were to return to the original scriptures as preserved by learned Brahmins, which were actually distinguished from, by both of them, the common run of Brahmins, those involved in priestcraft and the support of superstition for their own interests. Um, but if we go to the learned uh, set and their preservation of scriptures, we can start to understand the original purity of Hinduism as this essentially monotheistic and rational religion, which is then used by thinkers who have a particular religious axe to grind to also point to uh, similar patterns of superstition and dege de de degeneration in Christianity and uh, a general critique of priestcraft as the mechanism by which that decline happens. That's a common trait um, amongst all of them apart from Jones, right? So Hal, Dow, Howhead and Wilkins have all got well, one of the sort of um, central concepts, and I apologise, I have to ask you about it because it's such a horrible one to explain, is deism, right? They're deistic right. in quality. Now, your discussion of um, what deism was is scholarship has moved on quite a bit in the past couple of decades, mm -hmm. um, and you deploy it to good effect. But I suppose, how are, you know, in what ways are they deistic? What does... What does it mean to be a Christian deist? I mean, which is a, right. a phrase that comes up with, it's, that's with how, isn't it? Or was it? Yeah. That's with how, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so sorry, and explain the role of deism in everyone's accounts apart from a Jones right. and then come back to why Jones is different in a minute. Yes, yeah, the deism angle is very interesting. So the reason, part of the reason I came to look at these thinkers actually is because PJ Marshall has a very good book, but it's actually an anthology called British Interpretations of Hinduism or British Discovery of Hinduism in the 18th century. And it has a collection of excerpts from these authors. And his suggestion in this very short introduction is that they are deist. And so I wanted to think about what that actually meant in terms of how the arguments played themselves out in, in their interpretation of Hinduism. And as you say, this term deism is a really tricky one and often is considered to sort of obscure more than it clarifies when applied as a catch-all label. But I think there are some features that could be broadly associated with deism as a, a, an approach to religion that's much more minimalistic in its distancing itself from Christian orthodoxy. So the idea of a divine creator, um, 
ideas of natural religion, God being knowable through reason, and a lot of them subscribe to this model. Um, so they often share a view that God's providence is general and not particular, so he doesn't intervene in you know, specific affairs, it's just the, the rationality of the universe that allows for his providence to unfold. Um, they believe in a creator, they believe in um, the moral code of Christian teaching, very, very minimally defined, things like this. But I also was then interested, okay, what are some of the specifics? And they do have differences and Holwell is probably the quirkiest of the lot. Um, so, I mean, I could talk about this forever, so I'll try and just pick out a few pointers. But Holwell's real interest in Indian scripture is the discovery of what he calls the doctrine of metempsychosis. So this idea of the transmigration of the soul from one corporal form to another, which he then obviously links to reincarnation. And he thinks that this is a universal religious truth. And he's influenced obviously by Indian philosophy and theology here, but also by a lot of European religious traditions. So uh, one source that he tells us about in the text is the prophet Jacob Illev, who's, I think that's how you pronounce his second name, I'm not entirely sure, but he's active in the 1730s, 1750s in London. And one of his big claims is that um, humans are the trapped souls of the angelic fall, being punished for their sins pre prior to this life. And Holwell really takes on that idea and attaches it to his uh, concept of what the Indian Shastra is, which is why it's supposed that there's a lot of creative interpretation in his uh, idea of Indian philosophy or, or theology, that it, it, that it supposedly also tells a similar story about an angelic lapse and fall. And he also draws on the traditions of Cambridge Platonism, uh, medical treatises about uh, the consumption of meat being bad for you as an example of the kinds of destructive behaviours that have happened to humans as a product of the fall. And he connects that to reincarnation because we're not only consuming animal flesh we're also consuming the flesh of other trapped souls so there's a lot of complicated arguments going on in here he also in, jumps into the debate about uh christology does christ is christ divine is he uh, co-equal with god and his way of answering that is well it doesn't really matter we were all pre-existent celestial beings uh, on our path towards enlightenment. So there's a lot of different things and he draws from many, many texts to make this argument. Um, and these appear in a later, uh, the third volume of interesting historical events, which is the less influential one. A lot of people in their reception to that text sort of point out that he's uh, gone quite uh, strange and in his interpretation, but it's really important for understanding what he does present as Indian religion in the uh, prior volume, the second volume, because that's the framework that he's working with to present what Indian scripture is so that it conforms to this idea of pre-existence and metempsychosis. I just, I just ask about that. Um, <clears throat> I may be misremembering uh, that chapter, but is there, there, I think there's one point where you suggest that Hal had already come to those beliefs and then he used the information he was getting from India to then explain them, define them, justify them. So he started, it wasn't the, 
which sort of feeds into that sort of larger question of, um, and I don't, I, I still want to go through the heterodoxy stuff, but whether they, uh, up until Jones, whether they're motivated by a, a disinterested or sympathetic or empathetic desire to understand Hinduism in inverted commas as much as possible, or whether they are using their learning to contribute to European debates and the European debates are the, that's the, they have primacy. They're first and foremost in their minds when they're, when they're um, developing these accounts. Uh, so sorry to go off on a slight tangent, but yeah, can we yes. factor that in a bit? Yes. Yes, that's a very important question. And I think the answer isn't very straightforward, especially with Howell. I think it's a mixture of both. So I think he certainly is convinced of this idea of a pre-existent lapse before he starts writing about Indian religion. I think that's certainly a commitment of his. Um, but he then suggests that he's very pleased to discover this doctrine of metempsychosis or reincarnation and it isn't too much of a leap to see them as connected you could see how through the lens of that religious belief he might think that he stumbled across something here that actually is going to confirm and prove uh, what he already believes and so then the account that he gives of Hinduism like I said is very dubious and it does show a lot of um, creativity on his part he certainly picks up on some very uh, accurate or authentic aspects, you know, more so than his predecessors. Um, but the way that he tailors the narrative and the text that he presents as the most original and authoritative is just dramatically, coincidentally, also an explanation of this idea of the fall. So I think um, he is certainly invested in presenting Hinduism and I think this speaks for religion more generally because actually what he says about Hinduism also pertains to a narrative about religion more broadly that they all have this rational monotheistic core um, and I guess it's an argument for a more kind of minimalistic faith more broadly anyway but certainly he is probably the worst in terms of culprits for manipulating and taking insights that he achieves into Indian religion to fit his own narrative about what he would like that to ha mean for uh, theology in general. Um, and for him, it's very important because it solves the odyssey. It solves the problem of evil. It, if we have this pre-existent lapse, if we rebelled in our kind of celestial forms, then it, it resolves all of those tensions inherent in Christianity. Um, but I mean, on that dubiousness, I suppose a few pointers to make are that he doesn't know Sanskrit but he is claiming to have been drinking from the fountainhead of original Indian religion. And it's unclear whether this is via Pandit instruction, which is actually very unusual at this period of the company's engagement with actual Indian scholars. It's not until Jones really that we have these established working relationships very firmly. Um, so it's very unclear which text he's referring to and, and what access he has to it, and which has led you know, not just me, other scholars, to suggest that he's uh, taking fragments of other things and rewriting them into a narrative that fits his own ideas. We get a bit of that with Dow, certainly, but there's a more of a, um, 
accurate insight into Indian philosophy in general. So he gives an account of the Vedanta versus the Naya school of Indian philosophy that's not, you know, spectacularly accurate, but broadly correct. Um, and then with Halhead and Wilkins, we are getting closer to some more recognised forms of Indian philosophy. Um, so yes, they're not, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> so they're not distorting the fact they've got these uh, the lenses they have on are about um, what might Indian religion tell me about these overarching religious debates that's is that the the lens through which they're looking at these takes or is it here is a a culture I'm coming to understand we're able to understand in a way that no European has before because we're engaging with texts as opposed to observations of rites and ceremonies um, so it's, it's yeah it's, it's which of those is the sort of the Again, this might be too simplistic, please knock it down. Is, yeah, which of those lenses is being worn? Yes, I mean, I do think it's a mixture of the two. I think there's, there's a sense in which they are genuinely um, critical of previous accounts, which they consider to have unjustly maligned Hinduism and presenting it as polytheistic, um, ritualistic, and lacking any kind of rationality. And they certainly want to correct that misinterpretation as they see it. But then that move is also part of setting up their own authority as um, writers who do have unprecedented access to Indian scholars and languages um, as a way of dismissing other accounts and prioritizing those, which are certainly invested in a very particular view of religion in general, and also specifically what Hinduism can do for our understanding of religion as a category of thought. One of the sort of reiterated or the common themes of the book is the emphasis on, um, again, so there's always inverted commas about Hinduism here, though Hinduism is a philosophic right. religion. Can you say, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about um, what is under, I mean, this is all of them, right? Uh, what's understood by uh, Hinduism being a particularly philosophic religion? Yes, and this this absolutely relates to this distinction that I was talking between sort of high and low religion, uh, the learned Brahmins and the common run, scriptures versus superstitious ritualistic practice. It's a division of religion into those categories. And Hinduism is used as a specific example of this trend, this uh, decline from original purity to convoluted superstition. But it's also considered by them to be a universal trend as well. And they are very careful to say that Hinduism is just one example among many, including Christianity, where these patterns of decline uh, take place. And um, so, and this, but this also speaks to what scholars of comparative religion have pointed to as a kind of textual bias in Western understandings of what religion is. And they absolutely contribute to that idea that it's particularly Sanskrit sources and texts that help us reveal that original pure religion and a certain disdain for popular religious and particularly contemporary practices uh, that they are observing in um, India. Jones is perhaps the only one that subverts this trend because he's also very interested in the tradition of bhakti or, or, or worship in India and he has a kind of particular reverence for it as an expression of piety so he's slightly different there although he also certainly prioritizes uh, original texts. It's interesting so with um, 
um, or you mentioned already, one of the deistic sort of characteristics of what they're doing is the decline model, where there's an original pristine religion that contains, sort of, it's a rational religion, it contains the, the truths of theism, and then it is corrupted by um, priestcraft and by the vulgar as well, and by the multitude, um, uh, the nature of <laughs> the nature of the vulgar, but the nature of the multitude. Whereas Wilkins is saying something different. Wilkins yes. is doing the progressive model, and that meant that for me, um, coming from the Scottish Enlightenment side of things, um, Wilkins stood out as being, uh, yeah, very different in his approach. Um, yeah, can you can you um, either run with the decline bit a bit more, explain that a bit more, or jump into Wilkins as a progressive uh, historian of religion? Yes, yeah, I think that's true. So the rest of them subscribe to this de decline model. Hellhead is perhaps a slightly different in the sense that he's also generally more skeptical in his approach to religion more broadly. So he sort of implies that, um, you know, the claims to truth in Christianity and the claims to truth in Hinduism are equally implicit. They have the same basis and that they both appeal to the revelation of their scriptures. And, and he's very careful about being too blasphemous, but it's certainly read as a highly skeptical text by uh, reviewers. Um, but yeah, Wilkins is doing something different in that he's describing the Bhagavad Gita as a reform text uh, and specifically he says that the Brahmins who um, wrote and, and support the Gita are Unitarians and this obviously has connotations in this period, this rejection of the Trinity specifically, but the idea of a rational reform movement of, of Christianity to take it back to first original principles. Um, where I'd say maybe it's not so drastically different is that the implication is that there was a pure rational core to Hinduism that, that had degenerated, which then inspired the author of the Bhagavad Gita to reform that stage of um, Christianity. So there are allusions to Unitarianism in the fact that it's monotheistic and, and, and rational, but he also implies a kind of tension between um, Catholicism and Protestant here religions as well. So uh, he likens some of the Brahmins that the Gita is targeting to those who promote scholastic jargon in Europe. So there's a sense of a kind of uh, anti-Catholic but also anti-overly esoteric complex forms of religion as well. Um, but yes, it's not presented as an ancient original text, it's presented as a reform text for the purposes of bringing Hinduism back to its uh, core monotheistic practices and beliefs. How does this relate to issues of chronology? Because there are some pretty right. radical statements being made by some of them about, so you tell, you tell our listeners, but yeah, they're pretty radical in terms of how uh, Indian history lines up with uh, Christendom. Right, um, absolutely, Holwell, Dow, um, and Halhead are all committed to the model that Indian scripture, Sanskrit scriptures are drastically older than the Bible and really disrupt the assumptions of biblical history and biblical chronology. Um, you know, Dow in particular also refers to, um, at points, you know, the supposed flood, casting doubt on this idea of a universal deluge and, and Noah's Ark. Um, 
Holwell insists that I think it's 3100 BC is the original Indian text, um, which contains to him all of the truths of Christianity um, that are necessary for a uh, kind of true religion, really rendering Christ and biblical revelation kind of superfluous extras that come much, much later. Um, and that's one of the reasons that Voltaire really picks up on these authors kind of in his um, sort of critical armory against Orthodox Christianity, as well as other authors of that of that ilk. It's also why there's somewhat of a conservative reaction in Britain to their texts. So um, Halhead receives a very angry letter that's published widely by his uh, family friend and vicar George Costard who seeks to refute his views of the chronology of Indian scriptures um, and another review in the critical review uh, compares him to Voltaire and Hume in, in kind of uh, leveling out a foundation for skepticism um, and then Jones then I think this is why Jones is important in the book represents a turning point in this regard because he is very keen to realign Indian scriptures with biblical history and chronology, uh, so much so that he actively seeks out evidence of the flood in Indian scriptures, the, the Bhagavata Purana, for example, um, and is therefore welcomed by Anglican Orientalists or uh, readers. Um, his work is promoted above all as being the most accurate, but also the most friendly and least injurious to orthodox religion. Um, can I yeah. ask, sorry, can I ask then, why are there so many heterodox figures? Why are they, why, is it coincidence that the people who are leading this development are all on the kind of the fringes of Protestant deistic thoughts? In England, what? Yeah, what's that? Well, but I'm sorry. Well, well, yeah, why? <laughs> why? Yes, <laughs> that's a really good question. I mean, I think partly. So, of course, the company it has other. You know, there's a strong evangelical movement within the company, um, and they are campaigning actively campaigning for a mission in India um, that's very much resisted by uh, the company itself largely for pragmatic reasons because you know their reliance for example on sepoy troops would not invite a kind of um, a large Christian uh, mission but also um, you know partly because of the ideological architecture of British rule in India in this period very much leading on from Howell and Dow is brought into the idea of continuity and consistency with existing um, religious prejudices as they would have called them and but also the structure of the Mughal Empire itself it's not quite an independent uh, government in its own right it still exists within the framework of the Mughal Empire. So there's practical reasons why the kind of missionary um, angle doesn't really take off. But I also think those who are members of that missionary cohort 
are fairly dismissive of Indian religion and therefore mm. maybe not motivated to write about it. You know, John Shaw is an interesting example. He becomes governor general later and is a member of the Asiatic Society, but he's, and he does write somewhat about Indian religion, but he doesn't tend to see it in the same monotheistic, pure rational light and actually interests himself with things like chronology and geography um, as well. So I think it's those who are motivated by uh, the possibilities of thinking about religion in these more expansive, more deistic ways that are motivated to write about it. That's fascinating. William Jones is less of a heterodox figure in that he seems to be defending Christian truth and trying to merge the new learning into a picture that still you know defends scripture yeah can you say a bit more about how he is not he's still he's still heterodox but he's not as heterodox as the others yes yes jones was a bit of a puzzle piece in this regard because interestingly in the secondary literature he has been associated with what thinkers have sometimes described as a deistic motif in these interpretations of hinduism or he has actually been called a deist by some um interpreters as well so um mj franklin who's written biography of jones at points calls him a deist erzak has referred to him as a deist as well um but actually the contemporary perception of jones was that he was Orthodox Anglican and certainly after his death his biographer John Shaw this evangelical that I mentioned is keen to to kind of portray him in this way so there was something interesting going on there and part of the reason for that as I mentioned is because he is um insistent on fitting Hindu chronology within a biblical framework and um really commits himself to the truth of Christian scriptures in, in his writings and that's why he's certainly received by Anglican uh, writers as the the kind of most authoritative and, and used a lot so Thomas Morris for example is an Anglican whose own uh, Indian antiquities is pretty much plagiarized from Jones and his big point there is that Jones against uh, heterodox thinkers who are used by Voltaire defends national religion and this is in the context after Jones's death of the French Revolution and I think that has a lot to do with the reading so against this Jacobin heterodoxy Jones represents this kind of national religion that's consistent with the Bible. So in, in investigating what is actually going on in Jones um, I he, you know, he is deeply interested in Indian religion and still attributes to it many rational pious qualities and in particular he is attracted to the philosophy of uh, Advanta Vedanta which is this kind of non-dualist school of Indian philosophy um, which is very much interested in this idea of the return of the soul back into um, the kind of essence of the universe from and the highest universal reality and in that he sees something incredibly um, true and pious that relates to his own understanding of Christian religiosity but when it comes to chronology he's particularly insistent so he searches for examples of the flood he in fact falls afoul of a hoax um, that involved Francis Wilford, this character who also discovers evidence of Noah's progeny in some Indian scriptures. 
and Jones kind of verifies the Sanskrit that Wilford presents to him. But after Jones's death, it turns out that um, Wilford's pundits inserted these sections into the text uh, in a misinterpretation of what they thought that their patron wanted them to do. Um, so, and you know, this is in the context of a, a, a decided debate about Hindu chronology and a desire to uh, blunt in the edges of this skeptical interpretation of its great antiquity. In searching for why Jones did that though, I came across his own uh, letters and correspondence and some of his earlier notes from his time at Oxford. And it became increasingly apparent that he is, his own theology is most closely aligned with rational descent. And particular, in particular, the strand of rational descent associated with Richard Price, who, who he knew well and exchanged his letters with, refers to as good old Price and writes to him about his, um, sermons on the Christian religion as being in most in accordance with his own faith. So there is an element of heterodoxy there in that he's certainly a Unitarian in the same sense that Price is a Unitarian, um, denies the kind of complete doctrine of the Trinity. But within rational descent, and I mostly looked at the work of Louise Hickman to, to really understand this, there is a preference for religious scripture, biblical scripture, um, that undercuts kind of the miraculous elements of it, but nevertheless sees it true in the sense that it's an expression of kind of fundamental Christian truths. And so there is a commitment to scripture there that then guides as Jones's desire to bring Hindu religion in accordance with um, the particular features of biblical chronology and history. Um, but Jones's commitment to that is very rational in its basis. You know, he writes these interesting, uh, this interesting proposition as a student at Oxford, which he seems to maintain throughout his life that it's because of the prophecy of Isaiah that a Messiah will, Messiah will come and then Christ does come, that there's a logical proof of that prophecy being correct. And that's really the foundation of his own belief. So it is quite minimalistic in that sense, too. Interesting. Um, I think sort of well, our last topic, I suppose, should be how all of this relates to the East India Company and then to sort of the consolidation of the British Empire in India. Um, and I want to sort of let's first talk about the practicalities, and I, then I want to sort of end up talking about your kind of take on the motivations and the character of Orientalist discourse. Uh, you know, at the end of the 18th century, uh, as you, yeah, you're sceptical about certain interpretations recently. So let's start off with, these: are these company men writing company accounts to serve the company's interests and then the empire's interests? Is that, is that, is it straightforwardly that? Uh, yes and no, it's not straightforwardly <laughs> that, I would say. <laughs> um, they're certainly company men. They're certainly invested in the prospects of the company in India and in empire more broadly um, on the one hand. I also think though that they are deeply um, invested in these larger debates about theology and the meaning of religion and the truth of the religion. And that drives a lot of what they say about Hinduism. It's not straightforwardly tailoring a model of Hinduism that's suitable to a particular model of company governance. There's not that, that direct relationship between a kind of idea of power and control and, and the necessity of a certain kind type of knowledge to fit that. 
Ideas about company governance are also very diverse in this period. There's not a fixed model of empire that's being imposed. Um, and they are active in these debates. Um, Holwell and Dow both write about the company when they return to England in differently critical ways. Holwell's writing is very much self-aggrandizing. It's critical of the company, but very favorable towards his own policies and roles within the various intrigues in company politics. Um, Dow is much more critical of the company in general, and he's writing in the context after 1770, there's a great famine in Bengal, which the company is seen to have exacerbated greatly through its own policies. And there's a general air of criticism when, when Dow published these dissertations, uh, criticizing the company. William Boltz also wrote a text highly critical. Um, but again, it's not critical of empire itself. He also, outlines a set of proposals about how he thinks the company should reform itself and, and, and go forward. So, but the relationship between Hinduism or the interpretation of Hinduism and those proposals isn't quite so direct, but I do think on a kind of more macro scale, shall we say, they do set in motion certain trends or assumptions, or if not set in motion, at least bolster them, that does shape company rule as it develops through these debates over this period. So this idea of a pristine original Hindu religion does sort of pose itself in dichotomy with the ruling Muslim Mughal Empire. And there's a very clear division of those two communities as Gentu or Hindu being the original Indian, Indian religion and people versus this foreign Mughal Muslim influence. And that has implications for how um, the British see themselves potentially uh, recovering or protecting uh, Hindu uh, ideas against Muslim influences. There's also a sense in which um, both of them distinguish between the Maharaja states, um, the Maratha states, and the Mughal Empire and the Maratha states are seen as the most pristine examples of Hinduism, uncorrupted by uh, Islamic or company influences. And there's a certain sense in which perhaps the company isn't so justified in seeking to incur on those aspects of Indian territory. So it divides up maybe what seems like a legitimate um, set of claims for the company to um, expand its territorial acquisitions. It also has an impact in debates in that, particularly through the impeachment trial of Warren Hastings, we see the appeal to many of these texts. Um, Holwell's account of these pristine Maratha um, states, he talks about Bishnapur as this particular example of a really moral um, Hindu state that's uncorrupted. Burke mentions this in the trial as evidence of the antiquity of Indian religious norms and legal precepts. The Code of Gentoo Laws comes up in a very particular um, moment, which is quite ironic. This is in response to Hastings's uh, defense against what's called the Banaras charge. Um, which is a very complicated charge, but essentially this is where he makes that famous claim that in acting despotically, he was merely being continuous with the established norms of government in India. And Burke really seizes upon this um, 
Hal Head is thought to have contributed a great deal to this defence. And he points out that both of these men are heavily involved in the production of a code of Gentoo laws, which um, directly refutes this claim, evidence of an existing system of law and a set of recognised rules of um, uh, authority. So they are heavily involved in this um, notion that legitimacy requires appeals to existing customs, norms, and the older the better in a sense. The greater antiquity of these scriptures and norms, the greater claim that they have to authority. And that really lasts until the 19th century. So I think one of the texts I point to is Andrea Major's study of Sati, the move to abolish this practice of the self-emulation of widows on their husbands' funeral pyres. This becomes a big debate in the early 19th century, but the debate is really heavily rooted in the need for those for interference and those against to prove that it's inconsistent with original Hindu customs. So the appeal to the authority of scripture becomes very important in the ways in which the company seeks to legitimise its administrative uh, policies. So in the larger sense, I think they have a really important impact on these trends, the division of subjects into um, Hindu and Muslim. And as we get on, Halhead, Wilkins and Jones, more so because of their greater integration into the mechanics of the uh, government of the company. But at the same time, I think it is in sometimes contradictory or at least in tension with their heterodox interests and their desire to interpret Hinduism in those ways. And that provides also fertile grounds for readers of their works to criticize empire as well. So thinking about Diderot's use of Holwell and Dow in Raynell's History of the Two Indies, for example, which is highly critical of empire, but also they get picked up by free thinkers in the early 19th century to criticize European assumptions or Christian assumptions of superiority. So it has lots of diverse um, trajectories, I'd say, as well. It's really, really interesting. I suppose let's, let's finish up then with that, your sort of take on um the character or the quality of am i okay using am i okay as describing as orientalist scholarship in the end of the 18th century um it's a quite a common thing you, you come back and tell me what the correct term, terminology would be um it seems to be quite a common thing at the moment i've seen this periodization across sort of literary and intellectual histories uh, uh that that kind of 1760s the 18th century sort of gets worse and worse and worse <laughs> well, you know, and then into the early 19th century in terms of kind of the, the dogmatism or the arrogance of the empire towards uh, Indian religion and the, often the figures that you're looking at uh, have looked at in this book are treated as empathetic, sympathetic, you know, um, or disinterested scholars genuinely interested in the truth and you on several occasions you express scepticism about that. Um, making them more palatable, I suppose, that kind of right. scholarship does. Um, yeah, what, uh, where do you stand on that issue? Yes, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question, and one that I definitely try to grapple with in the book, probably in various veiled ways in different sections. And so I think, as I understand it, there's certainly a sense in which, contra Said, there's an attempt to suggest that 
because of their what they claim to be their unprejudiced reading of Indian religion, they're presenting actually a more sympathetic account that can be seen to, if not ameliorate, at least undercut the ideas of a, a kind of dominating subjugation that we see as characterizing Saidian Orientalism. Um, and I think that that, uh, a takes them at face value <laughs> when they're actually doing a lot of work to present themselves as unprejudiced, disinterested authors. But actually, if we look at this religious motivation that they have, this desire to see Indian religion through a particular lens, which if not directly for company policy is certainly for the purposes of intervening in particularly European debates, is interested in that sense. So it's not kind of, uh, objective scholarship, as, as we might suppose. But I also think this sympathetic label is quite an interesting one. And it's been used by literary scholars as well to kind of feed into cultures of sensibility as well, the idea that there's a, an effective appreciation of Indian culture through these encounters, as well as an intellectual one. Um, and again, I think this obscures the kind of complex reality of, sort of historical actors who are doing a number of things at once. <laughs> I think it's possible to have an appreciation for um, Indian religion, theology, philosophy and culture, and at the same time be very much convinced that empire is A, a practical reality, and B, something that's part of the fabric of the politics of Europe in the period, and not necessarily have too critical approach to that. While those things may seem inconsistent from our perspective at the time, even for thinkers who are often touted as, if not anti-imperialist, at least strident critics of empire like Edmund Burke, in fact, there's more overlap between those two positions than supposed. He's certainly a critic of the company, but not of empire per se. And he's certainly very admiring and interested in learning about Indian history and culture. I think it's a really good, I mean, it's a textbook. I don't mean that particularly. This is a really good example of like the um, what intellectual history focused on lesser authors can do for you know understanding really important wider cultural and political uh, developments. These are not apart from Jones. These are not sort of canonical, iconic, you know, um, major figures. Uh, but they fun, you know. So you could describe it, to repeat myself from earlier, the transformative moment in how Europeans thought about uh, Indian religion. Yeah, and it's a really fantastic book. I recommend it to our listeners. Uh, so one final question, Jessica, what are you working on now? And yes, what does the future yeah. have in store? Uh, yeah, thank you. So, well, actually, William Jones, who is, as you say, the last chapter of the book, and this is partly because so this book came out of my PhD thesis, in which Jones didn't feature, and then I felt a need to get towards the end of the 18th century, really close off this story of British interpretations of Hinduism. And so that chapter very much focuses on Jones' religious thought and the implications that it has for his interpretation of Hinduism, and then some of the implications that that has for his approach to Indian law. Um, but I'm more interested in now thinking about Jones's political thoughts. Jones is somebody who is often 
associated with this dichotomy between kind of being liberal at home, he's part of the reform movement, he certainly calls for quite radical parliamentary reform in his early life, and imperialist or despotic abroad. Um, but I actually think there's some interesting continuities going across his thought about the you know, importance of property in India, the importance of uh, religious laws, um, the codification of law, something that he actually attempts in England, not just India. So thinking about Jones and then how that expands into larger trends about the relationship between the reform movement or parliamentary debates about the British constitution as they pertain and relate to debates about its involvement in India and empire itself. Oh, excellent. So we'll look forward to another brilliant monograph. Uh, four years <laughs> time, five years time. <laughs> All right. Sorry, sorry. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you, uh, Dr. Jessica Batson. Bye bye.